0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from First Corinthians six verses nine through eleven. The word of God speaks to us like this. Okay. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of God to us. Well, good morning, everybody. If uh, if you're asking yourself, is it awkward to have your first Sunday at a church be this passage? The answer is yes. Um, so let's be awkward together. But let, let me do something before we pray and dive into this text. Namely, I, I want to put on the table for you why this is not a sermon about homosexuality. And, and, and I'm saying it's not a sermon about homosexuality because I don't believe the focus of the passage is about homosexuality, okay? The, the Bible has... Tons to say to us about our bodies and about sex. And as a church, we want to speak to all of those issues. We don't, we don't want to hide from those issues. And if this is an issue this morning that you have specific struggles with, we want to love you in those places. And if you have specific questions about, we want to draw near to you in those places. But if you just look at the passage in front of us Paul names homosexual sin right against heterosexual sin, right against a whole list of non-sexual sins. And he's doing this for a reason. He's not trying to highlight unique sins that bar one from the presence of God. He's trying to highlight unique sins that the Corinthians struggled with on a day-in, day-out basis just on their walk to work. Specifically meaning the temple of Venus and Aphrodite in Corinth had sacred prostitution as a part of their worship services. Both with homosexual prostitutes and heterosexual prostitutes. So in Corinth, to struggle with idolatry was to struggle with inappropriate sex, be it with a same-sex partner or an opposite-sex partner. And that's actually what Paul's going to move to in verses 12 to 20 of this passage. But let me just name for you quickly The passages in the Bible that are central in the conversation about homosexuality, just because I don't want to hide from anything. You can take notes or you can not. There's not going to be a quiz after this. I just want to give these to you if they serve you. And then I want us to talk about the core of what Paul's highlighting for us here. Six central passages in the Bible concerning homosexuality. You see in Genesis 20, sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 to 24, is the first place we see distinction of gender and the origin of marriage. Two places in Leviticus, in chapter 18, verse 22, and then again in chapter 20, verse 13, in the holiness codes, we have homosexuality mentioned. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, Paul mentions both male and female homosexual sin. In our passage here, this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, is quoted regularly because Paul uses technical terms to describe both the active and the passive partner in a male homosexual relationship and then again in first timothy chapter 1 verse 10 paul mentions homosexuality again there's lots to say about that but if we want to hear what paul has to say to us in this passage this morning And if we want to hear what God has to say to us in this passage this morning, it's not a focused sermon about sexuality. In fact, Paul is using sins that the Corinthians walked past or participated in on the regular as a means of highlighting for us the way in which we're inclined to be deceived about the righteousness of God. He's actually talking about God here. He's not even talking about you or me. He's talking about the temptation that the human heart has to be deceived as it pertains to the righteous nature of God's kingdom. And he's he's actually bringing a second correction as well to us. He's trying to help us. He's correcting our natural inclination to be deceived as it pertains to the grace of God. There's something weird about us as human beings that we struggle with shame on the one hand saying, well, my sin is way too big of a deal. God could never have anything to do with me. And Paul actually corrects that thinking in our passage this morning. And there's something about us that wants to rank other people's sins as higher than ours and always lower ours down and say either, well, God doesn't really care about this sin that I struggle with or just to say like God's, God's really not been out of shape about that at all. And Paul's correcting both those issues. So, man, my my prayer for us this morning is whether we deal with pride that manifests itself in judgment of others or shame that manifests itself in judgment of ourselves, we would actually hear the word of the Lord and respond to it. So let me pray for us, and we'll dive into this text this morning. God, my, my, my request is that you would help us this morning. Help us to get past what we're expecting to hear when these verses are read and actually get you. Help us to get past ourselves, our own biases, our own guilt, our own pride, our own shame. God, and help us to hear your word and receive it and respond to it. I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. I think the verses will be on and off the screen for you. And you've got a Bible there that you can use. I, I don't know how long you've been with Frontline Yukon. My first time here. So you could lie to me too and I would believe you because I don't know. I, I don't know if you've walked with us throughout this entire series thus far in Corinth or if this is your first Sunday here. But regardless of where you fit on those poles or any point in between, let me tell you something that we're inclined to forget. Corinth and the people that Paul were addressing aren't that far away from Yukon. In fact, if you study this letter and these people, you'll see very quickly that the Corinthians were a lot like you and me church at Corinth is made up of every group of people you can imagine. From every family background, from every financial situation, from every brand of dysfunction that you can think of, just like you and me. The Corinthians actually were just like us. Just like us, they struggled with identity. They struggled with authority. They struggled with relationships and conflict within relationships they struggled with sex just like us and just like us waves would come and go throughout the church at Corinth where people would be caught up with fashionable teaching that sounded amazing It sounded impressive. It garnered lots of immediate interest, but it was contrary to God's word. It was empty, it was hollow, and it was in the end dangerous. Just like us, they were moving between new waves of teaching and teachers. And just like us, the Corinthians were prone to deception. Maybe you're like, man, I was willing to go with you until now, but my mom didn't raise a dummy. I don't get deceived. I'm not prone to deception. But the fact of the matter is, you are. You and I, just like the people at Corinth, are prone to deception. And Paul is addressing right here in this text, deception that the Corinthians were dealing with on a daily basis. And you see this language in 1 Corinthians 6, look at the beginning of our passage in verse 9, this language of, hey, do you not know? And by the way, Paul isn't using this phrase as some kind of like spiritual slap to the Corinthians. He's not being a jerk, he's not being an irate father, he's not being condescending to them. He's actually speaking lovingly as a way of telling them what's coming forward here really matters. What's coming forward here you need to pay attention to. I don't know if you've picked this up. Chad, maybe Derek, maybe Jeff 9, maybe others. Every preacher has their tell, right? Their thing that they do to communicate, they want you to pay attention which truthfully, we want you to pay attention all the time, but we watch your attention drift, and knowing that something important is coming, we have this thing that's like, hey, pay attention. I I think that's mine, by the way, (laughs) just in case you wanted to take notes. I I, I grew up with a preacher that his tell, that the thing that was coming that we really needed to pay attention was, was put your seatbelts on. So you would saying now, nah, nah, put your seatbelts on. Verse 5 here, put your seatbelts on. Verse 7, put your seatbelts on. Verse 9, do you see what Paul's saying? Put your seatbelts on. It was annoying. I wish somebody had loved him enough to say, hey, pastor, put your seatbelts on. What I'm about to tell you is important. Don't ever say that ever again. And if Puckett has a put your seatbelt on, love him. Say, hey, hey pastor, put your seatbelt on. Don't say this. Do you not know? chat that this is what you do in the pulpit do you not know jeff nine that you do these things that are distracting this is paul's hey put your seatbelt on six times in our passage six times in chapter six paul uses this phrase did you see that look at verse two do you not know that the saints will judge the world verse three do you not know that we are to judge angels Verse 9, do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16, do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You could literally outline Brother Man's passage from those phrases. And he's just saying to us, family, this is important. The main things to follow are things that we do know but are inclined to be deceived regarding. The, the, the phrases of, do you not know? Is Paul loving us enough to apply the gospel of Jesus to the points where we most find ourselves running astray? And If you think about chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians Paul is bridging with our verses this morning the two significant issues that he's dealing with among the people in Corinth. In verses 1 to 7, or 1 to 8, we see that they're struggling relationally with conflict and slander and lawsuits. And in verse 12 to 20 of chapter 6, we see that they're struggling with sexual sin, with sacred prostitution in the temples. And Paul says the answer to both these problems comes from the same place. Do not be deceived. He tells us in our passage. And he brings a twofold correction. And the correction he brings goes like this Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. God is more holy than you can ever fathom. Do not be deceived, Paul says. God is more holy than you can ever fathom. And do not be deceived comes the second side of the correction God is more gracious than you could ever dream of. There's a a famous pastor that planted a church in Philadelphia and he was famous for saying, cheer up, you're way worse than you could ever admit to anybody that you are. But God is more gracious and loving than you would ever dare to dream. That's what Paul's effectively saying in our passage this morning. And I want us to just walk through those two points. Sorry if you're used to three points in a poem. I don't have a poem, at least not yet. I could come up with one on the spot should the spirit move. But I just have two points, not three points in a poem. And point one, I want us to deal with Paul's language of do not be deceived. God is more holy than we could ever fathom. And point two, do not be deceived. God is more gracious than we could ever dream. So let's just look at point one together. Do not be deceived. God is more holy than we can ever fathom. Paul says in verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, if you're working on your phone, I probably can't help you here, but if you're using the ESV, specifically if you're using one of the Bibles that we gave you, you'll notice next to that word unrighteous is a footnote there, and number one. Do you guys see that? And At the bottom of the Bible, it says wrongdoers. Now, why do I draw your attention to that? I'm not that much of a nerd, but I care about footnotes. The, the translation committee here is helping us see the continuity of all that Paul is bringing together from the previous section. Look at verse 7 of, of chapter 6. And he says, you guys are suing one another. Wouldn't you rather be wronged? Wouldn't you rather be wronged? Chapter 6, verse 7. And then verse 8, he says, though you should rather be wronged, instead you're doing wrong." And now in verse nine, he says, don't be deceived. Those who are wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. We've talked about experiencing the suffering of wrongdoing from others, committing wrongdoing ourselves. But what Paul's going to say in this section is, The problem in the world, friends, isn't that someone else does wrong to us. The problem in the world isn't even that we do wrong to somebody else. The problem in the world is, apart from God's grace, we are wrong. Apart from God's grace, it's not just that you do bad stuff. You and I are, apart from God's grace, bad, wrongdoers, unrighteous, I realize that contradicts the wisdom of singers like Ryan Adams, who says, I've got a really good heart, I just can't catch a break. If I did, I'd treat you like I want to, I promise. But he's a liar. It it, it contradicts self-talk in our current moment. Had a good friend say to me a couple of weeks ago, man, I, I, I had a cataclysmic relapse into addiction last week but I'm working on how I talk to myself. I did bad. I'm not bad. And I said, hey, man, like they might have told you that it's your group, but the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says we do bad because we love it. We do bad because there's a disposition inside of us that actually loves that and desires it. Hey, cheer up, man. You're way worse than you would ever admit to anybody else. God's grace is way bigger than you could ever fathom. Paul makes the move from suffering wrong to doing wrong to being wrong, and then he gives us this list of specific unrighteousness. He gives us a list of wrongdoing. And just look at it with me in verse 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6. In this list, Paul gives five sexual sins. And five, non-sexual sins. Paul puts heterosexual sins and homosexual sins both under the same condemnation. And Paul puts sins that we regard as very serious right next to sins that Christians, by and large, pretend don't even exist. You want an example? Paul names adultery here. He says, hey, don't be deceived adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And most Christians in middle America are fist pumping and saying, you better believe it, Paul. He says, hey, by the way, in the same category as those people are revilers. You know what a reviler is? you and me. Slander. It's what we do all the time. In fact, not only do Christians minimize it as a sin, tragically, Many of us don't even know that it's a sin. To run somebody down, to destroy somebody's name, to talk trash and demean someone's character, Paul says, to God, that is the same. Like those people are in the same category. If you vilify someone or defame them or slam them or smear them, he says, do you you not understand, friends? God is way more holy than you would ever fathom him to be because you're inclined to look at the sins around you and rank them. We tend to put ourselves at the bottom of the middle and everyone else around us higher above us, right? Your brother, your wife, your mom, your wife's brother, your wife's mom, the stuff they're doing way worse in the eyes of God than what you do. I mean, what you do, I mean, of course what I do is a sin, but I mean, none of that is them. Am I right? Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. What you need to do, friends, is you need to see your world through God's eyes and stop seeing God through your eyes. Paul says, God is way more righteous way more holy than you can ever fathom. Stuff you don't even put on the list, God puts on the same list as the stuff you put on the worst list. And then he goes on to say, don't be deceived. These people on this list will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see that? He says it twice in our passage, both in verse nine and again in verse 10. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he doesn't say earn. There's something about us that wants to go, well, that person's really bad. They don't get in God's kingdom. And I'm not so bad. I should get in God's kingdom. But that's a concept that says that we earn God's favor. How do you inherit something? Someone else decides that you become a recipient of it by no virtue of your own. They it might have to do because of your bloodline or something else, but the fact of the matter is you don't inherit something because of something you do. And God says, hey, understand something. The way you find favor and acceptance and membership in my kingdom is because I decide you're there. So he's not saying if you act in a particular way, you can't earn entrance into God's kingdom. He says, no, no, those who inherit God's kingdom don't act like this. So, oh man, please, please, please stop trying to behave your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot behave your way into God's kingdom. You cannot earn your way into God's kingdom. Religion tells you that that's what you should do. It tells you, Cuss less, drink less, stop smoking, stop gambling, stop looking at porn. And if you just do that well enough, maybe God will let you in. But this isn't talking about earning. This is talking about inheriting. So God isn't talking about a tick mark list of who gets in and who doesn't. He's saying, those that I've placed my grace on, you need to understand I'm more righteous, I'm more holy than you think I am. See, the issue at Corinth is these people who had encountered Jesus, and Jesus had transformed their lives, and now they're struggling with how do I apply the truth of what God's done for me to the practices at the temple that I used to do every Thursday. And, And Paul's saying, don't be converted by the temple of Venus. Don't be converted by the temple of Aphrodite. Don't be converted by your own tendency to rank your friends' sins around you. I am more holy, says the Lord, than you could ever fathom. And and that's Paul's point, which if you're like me, you hear that and you, you get a little bit woozy. But Paul's language of don't be deceived helps us understand that deception inclines us to say, my sin is less of a big deal than it is. That's what deception does in us. It says, hey, my sin's not that big of a deal. Paul says, that's being deceived. Deception also says, God doesn't really care about that. Paul says, hey, don't be deceived. God cares about more than you could know. God's holier than you could fathom. Don't be deceived and say your sin doesn't matter. And don't be deceived and say God doesn't matter care God is infinitely holy have you ever thought about how you get deceived probably helpful if you want to not be deceived there's at least three ways that I think of that we get deceived way number one is we just didn't know We didn't know and the way we fill in the blanks, we find ourselves operating in a way that's contrary to the truth. You can be deceived just because you didn't know the truth. And if that's you this morning, the word of God intends to supply the truth where it's lacking and set you free from your deception. But there's there's other ways we get deceived beyond not knowing. Some of us hear the truth, but the truth gets twisted toward us so then we're deceived by the truth and what I mean is this I had a conversation with a woman last week and she said man I've been around the Bible my whole life but I was raised in a cult and she said until I was 18 years old the Bible was constantly used to manipulate and to hold us down and to make us stay she was on a compound And she said, it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I jumped out a window and ran away. And it took years of the truth of the Bible actually being given to me straight instead of twisted for the deception that had been sown and grown into my life to be uprooted. You can be deceived because you don't know. You can be deceived because someone takes God's word and manipulates it to their benefit. Or we can be deceived because we hear the truth of God and we just don't like it. And in that place we go, yeah, I get what he's saying. But I mean, he doesn't really, really mean that. He doesn't really mean that. I mean, that's the place where deception entered the human race. If you go back to Genesis 3, did God really mean that? And we, we answer ourselves, no, surely not. Surely he doesn't care about this sin as much. Or surely he doesn't think this sin is as big a deal. And Paul lovingly, lovingly, deliberately, repeatedly goes on and on and on to say, stop it. Do not be deceived. Put your seatbelts on. Pay attention to what I say. Hey, Paul's saying. God cares about that because God cares about everything because God is more holy than you can ever fathom. Stop letting sin deceive you into saying it doesn't matter or stop letting sin deceive you into saying God doesn't care. God is holier than you could ever dream of. Now, If you're like me and your eyes get open to that, I start backing up and going, Oh, I didn't know he's that holy. Oh, I didn't understand he's that clean. I didn't understand he's that righteous. I didn't understand he's that bright. And I fall to the other side of deception. Whereas if one side of deception says sin doesn't matter, God doesn't care we minimize God's holiness the opposite side of deception says my sin matters so much my sin matters so much that God could never love someone like me God could never accept someone like me maybe he could accept someone like you but never like me and to that point Paul says do not be deceived God is more gracious than you could ever think up look at verse 11, he's just given us this comprehensive list, essentially. It's a short list, but once you put greed on something, it kind of captures everybody. Am I right? If you say, no, you're a liar, which I think is on this list too. Like, Paul just said, hey, nobody then can inherit the kingdom of God, right? If we're we're working for it. It's not about working. It's about bearing in your body the realities that God speaks over you with his grace. So Paul says, don't back away and act like you're too dirty to be part of his kingdom. Because he says in verse 11, such were some of you. Which what he means, of course, is by God's grace, such were all of you. If you've been an inheritor of the kingdom of God, then all of you were on this list. And he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He says, hey, don't don't be deceived. (laughs) Don't be deceived. Our sin matters more than we ever know. And do not be deceived. God is more scandalously generous than you could ever fathom. When he says, such were some of you, then he comes on with this triple, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. To be washed is the spiritual cleansing of the guilt and power and shame and penalty of sin from inside out. Religion says, wash yourself from the outside in, but you and I both know religion can't wash you clean. No amount of external behavior can wash you clean. Paul says, God can wash you, which baptism, of course, is what the church has done since its inception to signify God's washing. But it's helpful to remember all the time, the church can baptize you, but only God can make you clean. Only God can wash you. He says, hey man, you were on my list, but don't cross yourself out from the kingdom of God. God is more gracious than you can ever fathom. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified, which justification is the process by which God, in his sovereign mercy, in his sovereign good pleasure says, I choose you. And though you are unrighteous, I declare you to be righteous forever. No one can stand opposed to me. No one can take that truth down. No one can change that. I take wrong people and declare them right, says the Lord. And sanctification is what God does to make people what he said they are. It's a lifelong journey, by the way. And the older you get, the the more you realize the harder it is. The longer it is, the slower it is. But God knows that. You know how I know he knows that? He inspired this passage of scripture to be given to the church. He inspired this passage of scripture to be given to you and me. Why did he do that? Because he knows that we're inclined to be deceived. He knows that we're inclined to either minimize our sin or minimize his holiness or maximize our sin and minimize his grace. He knows that. And so, because he loves us and because he wants us to be free, not bound, he gives us his word. And he knows that this is a lifelong process for us. So, the only question I have for you is when you fall, because this list isn't about who commits an act, this list is about who has oriented their life around serving these ends. The question is when you sin, when you fall, where do you run? Do you run to God, believing his grace and mercy will wash you and make you clean? Or do you run away from him, believing you have to make yourself clean by your behavior? Pray with me.